Amen. Amen. Good point. We need to believe. Amen. We need to believe God wants to do powerful things. I'm believing today. How many are believing with me? I believe God wants to set captives free today. I believe God wants to heal the brokenhearted today. I believe God wants to start, restore relationships today. I believe God wants to heal the brokenness in our spirit and our relationship with God. I believe God wants to heal the relationship we have with one another. And I believe ultimately God wants to even heal sick bodies today. Amen? Are you believing with me this morning? We're going to ask God to do great things. Let's stand. We're going to pray. Lord, we just thank you this morning. We do believe. Lord, your word says if we would have the faith the size of a mustard seed, which is a very small seed indeed, we could say to this mountain, be plucked up and removed and cast into the sea. Lord, it just means that we can believe for that which is seemingly impossible, Lord. And with humanity, many things are impossible, but with you, all things are possible. And Lord, we pray today that you are going to do supernatural things Lord, in our lives, for those that are in the congregation here, those that are listening through the streaming sources, Lord, I just pray today, right where we're at, the needs that we have, that your spirit would reach out and reveal your power to each heart, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to turn in our Bibles. We're going to continue our series of messages from the book of Proverbs. We're in chapter 27. And uh, I want to just turn your minds to uh, a movie, a movie that many of us maybe have seen, Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings. How many have ever seen Lord of the Rings? How many know it's taken from a book written by uh, J.R.R. Tolkien? And really, I don't know if you realize this, but Tolkien was a Christian. And that whole series is actually an analogy of the Christian life. And these little hobbits are actually representative of the community of faith and all of the other alliances that they build. And there's a second series. A book was broken. I mean, it was so big, they broke it into three parts. And the second book was entitled uh, Fellowship of the Ring. And it's interesting, if you read through the book or see the movie, it's the weakest that God uses the most powerful. Isn't that an amazing thought, that God uses the weak things of this world to confound that which is strong? And that's the story, basically, how evil is overcome. And isn't that the story of the scriptures, that the, the power of darkness is being overcome by the power of God? And that to, for us to succeed in this pilgrimage called the earthly life, that we cannot do this in isolation. We must do this in relationship. We must do this in community. Probably one of the most well-known parables of Jesus was entitled the Good Samaritan, or we've entitled it the Good Samaritan, where Jesus answers a question posed to him because a leader wanted to justify his uh, uninvolvement with other people when he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answers that by telling us the story of the Good Samaritan. So in Proverbs 27, we're going to evaluate a similar question. And the question I want to look at is, who is my friend? Who is my friend? Or what kind of a friend am I to those that are around me? And probably one of the greatest gifts in life is the gift of friendship. Isn't that true? You know, it's interesting in the book of Genesis, man shall not 
Uh, you know, man, it, it wasn't good for man to be alone. God raised up a woman. There was a sense that there needed to be a relationship, that there needed to be friendship. And I believe that, you know, marriage should start out as a friendship, that, you know, the person that we're spending our life with becomes our friend or should be our friend, and we should be their friend as well. But I often wonder who our friends are. You know, maybe we're we're, maybe we feel lonely during this time because of all the restrictions and the isolation. We're wondering, who are my friends? But maybe the bigger question is, who am I being a friend to and reaching out to by phone, FaceTime, whatever the, the way or means that we have to connect? We should be employing those means. The Bible states that God called certain people his friend. How many think that's an amazing thing? And listen to what the prophet Isaiah says here in Isaiah chapter 41, and uh, beginning in verse 8. It says here, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. This is not advancing here, Rob. Can you help me out? Thanks. What an amazing privilege to be called a friend of God. How many think that's an amazing thing to be noted as God's friend? How many think that'd be pretty powerful to be, you know, God says about you, Chris, you're my friend. And yet when I read in the New Testament in John chapter 15, I notice um, that he says, you're my friends if you do what I command. And then he goes on to say in the very next verse, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Isn't that an amazing thought? You know, Jesus actually starts saying to his disciples, listen, you know what? You're really my friends if you actually follow me. How many think that's kind of powerful? That you're my friends because I'm revealing my Father's business to you. How many know friends kind of share things with each other that they probably don't share with other people? How many know that, recognize that? And that's what Jesus is saying here to his followers here. He says, I, I want you to know that you're my friends. What a powerful thing it really is. Uh, well, this thing really started advancing when I hit the buttons here. Huh? Uh, so I want to take a look today a little bit about this whole idea of friendship and some of the dynamics that are involved in human relationships. And I believe that friends can help us develop. Friends can also hinder us from developing as well. So we have to choose good friends or become those good friends that other people need. And we can develop in our character. And so the first dynamic of friendship is really the challenges that relationships bring to us. How many recognize that relationships can be challenging? Anybody figured that out yet? And that it actually takes work to have healthy relationships. And we're going to look at that. I think friendship requires effort on our part. I mean, if you don't do anything, you probably don't have a relationship with that person. How many recognize you got to keep communicating? You got to work at relationships. Otherwise, if we neglect them, you know, we can become isolated and lonely and we can say, you know, really, I don't have a lot of friends. But the issue is, am I being a friend to people as well? Am I doing the work necessary to build these relationships? I think they should be a two-way street. And the healthiest relationships are generally those that are mutually beneficial relationships, that we're both gaining something from the relationship. Now, I think there are some relationships that we're, we're giving more than we're receiving. 
And then I think some people are just receiving, receiving, receiving. But, you know, to be a, really in a healthy relationship, you want mutuality. You want, you know, where you're, you're, it's give and take. There's a going back and forth between the two individuals. And I think, you know, often it's our personal insecurities that create conflict and disruption in what could or should be a healthy relationship. I mean, you know that's true. You know, a lot of times it's issues inside of ourselves that are hindering the kind of relationships we can have with other people. I think the first challenge is the kind of friend we are and then the kind of friends we choose. Our perception of ourselves are generally communicated by the words we say. Isn't that true? That's, that's who we're conveying, who we are. It's coming out. But Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we get an idea of where people are coming from by listening to what they're saying. And yet here we're going to take a look uh, that, that words can help us to be empathetic as well as words can help us to instruct people. Words can help correct things when they're wrong. How many know correction is not always a bad thing? Sometimes we need to be corrected. We can't develop. We can't grow. Maybe we're, you know, if you don't correct a, a broken bone, that, that, you know, that's going to create problems down the road for you. So correction is not a necessarily a negative thing. And often in trying to impress other people, we make statements that we're going to do certain things in the future. And how many recognize that may not be a wise thing? As a matter of fact, Proverbs 27.1 starts out this way. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. He goes on to say, let someone else praise you and not your own mouth, an outsider and not your own lips. Bruce Walke says this, self-praise is unfitting because a mortal does not control his own destiny. How many know that's true? Tomorrow actually refers to the most immediate future and functions as, as a metonymy uh, for hope for experiences, accomplishments such as accumulating wealth or wisdom or feats of strength like victory in war. If the most immediate and most visible future is not under human control is uncertain, how much less the distant future? How many recognize that you and I really have nothing to boast about. Let me just point out a couple of things. First of all, all of who we are and our abilities and gifts and graces are really a gift from God. And if you don't believe that, God can strip them away. God can allow calamity to come into your life and it can be removed from you. And you'll find out just how weak you really are. So I think we need to recognize that anything that we've ever done, all that we have done, you have accomplished, Lord. In other words, Lord, you have helped bring us to this place. As a matter of fact, I would argue that you and I are an accumulation of life experiences and all the people that have spoken and helped us in our lives. We're, we're a product of all of these other elements in our lives. And we have been blessed and enriched. We've been given amazing opportunities. And especially in the world in which we live, I mean, it's unbelievable the opportunities we have and how we've been enriched by other people. So we have to be very careful and recognize that really these are graces that have been brought into our lives by Almighty God. And how many could honestly say that it, it would be unwise of us to talk about tomorrow when we look at how 2020 turned out. How many recognized, how many, how many anticipated that 2020 we would have a pandemic? How many actually knew that last January? Anybody really were up to that, you know? Or did, were you kind of caught by surprise when all of a sudden the world started shutting down 
And uh, people started getting sick all over the world. How many recognize that you and I, you know, we can make all the plans we want to, but implementing them is a totally different ballgame. We don't know what tomorrow holds. But I like to remind myself, but I know who holds tomorrow. Isn't that great? That I don't have to live in fear because I know God is in control. I know he's a good God. And I know ultimately, even though there are negative things happening in our world, that God is still going to use the tragedies and the difficulties and the painful situations as experiences for you and I to grow and develop and become the people God designed for us to become. I love Jeremiah. Jeremiah reminds us what we can boast about. In Jeremiah 9, he says this, this is what the Lord says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, if you want to get excited, I mean, to have the privilege of getting to know God, to have the privilege of becoming God's friend. You know, if you take nothing else from this message, here's my prayer for you, that you will embrace the idea that I can be a friend of God, and God is my friend, and he wants to be my friend, and he, he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's a friend that never leaves us nor forsakes us, and you and I never have to live in loneliness or isolation because we always have a friend that goes everywhere we go and his name is Jesus. And that we can take all of our sorrows, our griefs, our concerns, our failures, our faults, and, and know that he loves you and me unconditionally. Isn't that an amazing friend? To have God as your friend, to have someone who can do something about every situation, that to me is amazing. He says, I am the Lord who exercises kindness justice and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. So boasting is something that we should avoid if at all possible, and we should move away from trying to predict what we're about to do. You know, if it be the Lord's will, we'll do these things, as Jane points out to that. Isn't that true? You know, if God enables me, we're going to plan to do this. Now, planning is not necessarily wrong. It's just the idea that we think we can implement everything we dream of. It doesn't always happen that way. How many have had, you know, plans? You know, the Bible says, you know, we plan, but God determines. Isn't that true? So planning is a good thing, but we have to be a little more relaxed about the implementation and the outcomes of it because only God can determine those things. You know, Paul Coptic basically talks about how God helps us with our lives. He says it this way. Uh, he says, it challenges our superficial assumptions about human self-sufficiency. I believe that's what God's dealing with right now, our understanding of self-sufficiency. He's kind of knocking that out of us a little bit. How many get that idea that we are really not as sufficient as we think we are? You know, He's challenging our superficial assumptions about our skills or accomplishments or anything else that might displace our need to love and depend on other people, like, you know, family, neighbors, and even the plants and animals on God's good earth. And I, I think that's so true. We should only receive the praise that comes from a more objective source than ourselves. This is the kind of friend that will help us on our journey through life. Proverbs uh, 27 2 says, Let someone else praise you, and not your own mouth, an outsider, and not your own lips. Bruce Walke says, Self praise is unfitting because it destroys one relationship with God and with people. The Lord detests the proud, and society dislikes and discounts the boaster. Isn't that true? 
No, people don't identify with people like that. It says self-praise diminishes one's status and suggests that one is proud, socially in, uh, feels undervalued, and is socially insecure. That's really what it's telling us. When we have to prop ourselves up, it just says there's an insecurity there that's making us do that, and we need to recognize that. You know, let me tell you something. God, if God, God can elevate you at any moment, did you realize that? If God wants you to be noticed, you'll be noticed. And if you're not being noticed, relax. You don't want to be noticed. <laughs> you want to fly under the radar. It's not a bad thing, right? Uh, and then there are other behaviors that are difficult to put up with in relationships. Look at verse 3. Stone is heavy and sand a burden, but a fool's provocation is heavier than them both. Here in verse 3, we see that there are some people who are difficult to deal with. Any, anybody met difficult people? Anybody experienced difficult people in your life? You know, Roland Murphy says, the physical fatigue caused by bearing heavy burdens is obvious, but worse is the mental and spiritual pain that a fool provokes. I, I like that statement. Isn't that true? You know, people can wear you down. Anybody get worn down? You know, here's a similar statement I was reading in the Apocrypha. I, I know this is not in the Bible, but it is a good literature. You know why the Apocrypha is not canonical at times? Because everything written in there is already found in the scriptures. But I like the way this one says in, the, in Sirach 22, 14, what is heavier than lead and what is its name except fool? Sand, salt, and a piece of iron are easier to bear than a stupid person. <laughs> That's just another way of saying it, right? Uh, there's some difficult people out there. And then we have another comparative proverb in the next verse, verse four. It says, anger is cruel and fury overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Tremper Longman relates that this is a proverb that presents a series of growing intensity. It acknowledges the harm caused by wrath and anger, but suggests that they pale in light of jealousy. The reason being is that anger and fury are emotional states of pa passion that are soon aroused but quickly diminished. In other words, people can get upset really fast, but then they you know, flare out. Isn't that true? But jealousy is a totally different creature, isn't it? It can really simmer, and it, can it develops a sustained activity. Uh, both envy and jealousy can arise and take action that has obviously been premeditated, you know, because this thing grows and becomes terrible. Now, I want you to think about the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis. Remember his brothers were envious of him because of his preferential treatment by their father? And then God gave Joseph these dreams that suggested that he would be preeminent among his siblings. Let me just pick it up a little bit here in chapter 37 and verse 4. And then when his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. That's what happens when you're envious and jealous. You know, you just don't like that person. There's a reason that's prompting it. We can see it here. They just dislike the fact that Joseph was their father's favorite, right? And then after the dreams, we read this comment here in verse 11. It says, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. And so later on, when Joseph now is sent by the father to check on his brother, and he ends up going to Shechem, and they're not there. And then, you know, I love this story. Don't you love the way the narrative goes? And then there was a, a man that found Joseph wandering about looking for his brothers. I wonder who that man was. You ever thought about that? 
Those are interesting statement. That's kind of a little aside. But anyways, he tells them, oh, I overheard the conversation. They're over there in Dotham. And so Joseph takes off to find his brothers. And the Bible says here in verse 18, but when they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. How many can see that hatred and jealousy can create some nasty ingredients inside of a human soul? Look what's happening. They hate him so much they want to destroy his life. Here comes that dreamer they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him, and then we'll see what comes of his dreams. And yet, we recognize that God rescued Joseph by, at that very moment, they noticed the caravan of Ishmaelites traveling, and they decide instead of killing him, we'll just sell him into slavery. Isn't that interesting? How many know that was providential? That was just part of God's plan to move Joseph down to Egypt. How many think that sometimes God's vehicle in our life to get us where we ought to go is kind of a little bit interesting? How many would like to be sold into slavery so God could move you from one location to the next? We don't think that way, do we? But sometimes God allows the trials to come into our life to actually move us to a different place in our lives because God has something intended that would be far greater than if we remained in that state where we were at. And that's exactly what happens in the story. Proverb here asks, who can stand before jealousy? It is worse than anger and fury. And people will often betray their friends motivated out of their own insecurities, envies, and jealousy. Isn't that true? And we've seen that. Yet true friends exhibit deep concern for those they love. In verse 27, uh, 5, verse 20, uh, chapter 27, it says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. And wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Now, I think that's an interesting contrast that's being painted here. You see, here we find that true friends can many times speak words that on the surface seem like wounding words, but they're corrective words. They're the words that we don't want to hear, but they're the words that we need to hear. And we've all had those moments when someone has spoken a corrective word in our life And you know what? It hurts, but it's the right thing to be told. And we need to hear those words to help make the correction in our lives. And how many know that there are some people that have false words? You know, flattery many times is a vehicle that's a form of manipulation. Isn't that true? And we see here an enemy multiplies kisses. In other words, just be careful uh, what people are saying to you. Because I think, you know, we always want to hear the nice words but sometimes they're self-deceptive words. They're just you know, saying, yeah, go ahead, keep doing what you want to do. We're being told to do what we really want to do. We're going to listen to that. But many times that's going to lead to our own destruction. And so a true friend will speak the right words, even though at times it causes a wound. Truth spoken in love, I wrote, is the coinage of friendship. Truth spoken in love is what's really of great value. Bruce Walkie says, friendship with a fool is impossible, but wrongdoing by a friend must be resolved. A true friend is concerned about the well-being of others, their friend, which at times may mean saying something they don't want to hear. But you know, one of the real challenging areas is ingratitude. It's a destroyer of healthy relationships. You know, a lot of times we take people for granted. Isn't that true? Don't we do that? Come on now. We take a lot of things for granted in life. 
And you know when you start taking things for granted in life, you're not always appreciative. And you don't appreciate things many times until you lose it. How many have kind of recognized we've lost a few things and we're realizing, you know, there's a lot of things I took for granted, but you don't value it until it's gone in your life. And it's certainly true in our relationship with God, who has blessed humanity with so many good things. As a matter of fact, Paul says in the book of Romans in chapter 1, verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. So when we don't value the good things, we end up embracing that which is unhealthy for us. Because, you know, there's no voids or vacuums in life. You know, if you don't embrace what's good, you're going to end up getting sucked into embracing what's bad. And the next set of Proverbs kind of bring that out. Because I think our state of mind then becomes so affected by what we're experiencing that our perception of life becomes distorted. And I see that a lot. We begin to desire that which is unhealthy and detrimental to us. Listen to what it says in verse 7. One who is full loathes honey from the comb, but to the hungry, even what is bitter tastes sweet. Well, that just seems really obvious, doesn't it? You know, if you're, if you're full and sated, you're not going to be, you know, appreciative of what you have. And if you're starving, anything, you know, you'll be happy with. But I think there's a more significant idea. And in verse 8, it goes on to say, like a bird that flees its nest is anyone flees from home. Here we see a contrast between someone who's full of a good thing but loses appreciation for it and those who are hungry and find satisfaction in something that isn't good. It's bitter. How important it is to appreciate God's blessings and the blessings that he brings into our lives and not to actually take them for granted and begin to despise them. Bruce Walke writes, gratification in the wrong thing leads to contempt of good things. How many know that if you start enjoying sin, pretty soon you despise the good things of God? Isn't that true? It's true. You get sucked in. You you think this is really good, but eventually these are the things that destroy you. But you don't see it at the time. You're embracing something that you think is good for you, but it's self-destructive. And a lack of gratification in good things leads to enjoyment of bad things. This occurs many times in marriage. Ray Van Leeuwen writes, he ties the two verses together and says it this way, the satisfied husband is content and does not wander like an errant bird from the nest. People controlled by lust or hunger cannot or do not discriminate. Let me move on to the second dynamic of relationships or friendship. It's the second one is the courage that relationships bring to us. If the first one is the challenges, how many know it takes courage to have relationships? It's going to take work, but I'm going to say it's going to take courage. When I use the word courage here, I'm not just speaking about uh, bravery. I think that's the first word that may be a synonym that comes to our mind. But let me give you another idea of thinking about courage. To me, one of the opposites of courage is discourage. And a lot of people today are discouraged. And I'm, I'm fascinated when I read the scriptures, how many times God says, be of good courage. Haven't you read that? Over and over again in the scriptures, I keep reading these words, be of good courage, be of good courage, be courageous, be strong. You know, like God's telling us to be like this. And I think it takes courage actually to continue in life when it's easier to just despair, feel alone, give up, falter, quit, right? 
Don't you think this, a lot of people are checking out today, giving up? One of the gifts of true friendship is to come alongside of people in a time of despair. It takes work. Their perspective, when people come alongside of us when we're down, their perspective helps us regain equilibrium in our lives, regain balance in our lives. You know, when you're discouraged, you don't, you're not seeing life clearly. When you're down, you're not looking with the right lens at what's really going on. You're looking at le the lens through a darkened lens right at that moment. And isn't it amazing when a friend can come along who's got clarity of vision and perception and can stand alongside of you? Actually, I believe that's one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. Let's just talk about the Holy Spirit for a minute. He's the paraclete. He's the one that comes alongside and strengthens us. But how does he do it? Through people. Through people that are full of the Spirit, they come alongside and they do things. So the value of good, godly friends speaking words of encouragement into our lives is absolutely important and critical in our lives. Look at verse 9. It says, perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. It's just like the, you know, how many know that perfume, if you go buy perfume, how many know it's pretty expensive? It can be very expensive because it's, you know, how they have to produce it and create it and all the rest of it. And he's saying a friend that can come along like this, this is a powerful thing indeed in our lives. He goes on to say, do not forsake your friend or a friend of your family and do not go to your relative's house when disaster strikes you. Better neighbor nearby than a relative far away. And I, and I was thinking about this, these two Proverbs together. I was thinking about a time in King David's life when he was, before he was a king, and he, was, uh, he had been anointed by Samuel to be the king, but you know, Saul was threatened by David, even though he was a son-in-law and he was uh, trying to help his father-in-law. He was, you know, he was, uh, Saul was insecure. He was jealous of David. Remember that, going back to that earlier proverb. David is now running for his life. And how many know, you know, it's one thing to have a momentary run, but David started running for the next decade. I mean, that gets old after a while. How many know that, you know, you don't see an end to this thing? And David was so discouraged. And it says here in 1 Samuel 23, 14, David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the desert of, uh, hills of the desert of Ziph. And day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. How many know that'd be kind of discouraging? Anybody think if your life's in jeopardy, you might be a little nervous, you know? And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Isn't that a beautiful text? Here's the crown prince, comes to David and says, listen, David. He says to him in uh, verse 17, don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. Be encouraged. Listen, God promised you, you're going to be the king over Israel. And I'll be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. See, Jonathan is reminding David of God's promises to him and how good it is when fellow believers come alongside of each other and remind one another of the goodness of God and the promises of God, especially when we're losing perspective. Amen? Isn't that kind of what happens when we come to church on a Sunday? Maybe some of you are a bit discouraged and you're hearing the message and God is speaking into your spirit and saying, hey, listen, I'm your friend. I care about you. You know, don't focus on the problem. You know, I'm bigger than that problem. You know, don't keep looking at the winds and the waves. Look at Jesus. He's walking on the water. You know, we need to see him. We need to see him as our friend. 
So God uses Jonathan's friendship and words to encourage and strengthen David's resolve. You know, the right kind of friends, these godly friends, these good friends can give us good heartfelt advice that eventually brings joy into our hearts. We need to see people as God's gift to us in helping empower our lives. And I believe we need to be those same kinds of people to others. It's not just, you know, where are those people in my life? I'm asking you the question, are you that kind of a person in someone else's life? It's a mutual thing, right? And when we walk in wisdom, we can become a person of integrity that others can count on. Listen to what he says here in verse 11. My son, be wise, my son, and bring joy to my heart. Then I can answer anyone who treats me with contempt. And then he says, the prudent sees danger and takes refuge, but the simple keeps going and pays the penalty. Now, I think we need to understand the context of this instruction. You need to understand the Bible is set in a shame-honor culture. Isn't that true? It's a shame-honor culture. A little different in our culture, but it's a shame-honor culture where a person's action affects not only themselves, but their entire kinship group. In other words, if I do the wrong thing, it doesn't just bring shame on me, but it brings shame on everybody around me. They're all suffering because of my action. One's behavior is a reflection not only of the individual, but also of his entire kinship group. So we need to act wisely and prudently, or otherwise others will suffer for our actions. Even though we don't live in a shame on our culture, how many recognize, you know, you and I are not an island. Everything we do is affecting other people's lives. You know, I love this text. It's talking about Jesus. It says, by one man's obedience, many became righteous. But you know, your obedience and my obedience blesses people. And your disobedience to God and my disobedience to God produces death and brokenness in many people's relationships. I think we need to pay more attention to the effects that we're having on people around us. We need to see that people who walk in wisdom are either bringing shame and honor not only to themselves, but to the one they represent. Do you realize today that if you're a child of God, your heavenly Father is affected by your behavior? How many know that's true? You know, if you and I go out and sin and do terrible things, people look at your life and go, is that what it is to be a Christian? We're bringing shame and discredit to the kingdom of God. But when you and I do the right things and honor our Father, we glorify Him. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. In other words, we've lost our intrinsic value to our culture. I think we need to be salty, folks. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and do what? And what will happen as a result? They're going to glorify, not you, but your Father in heaven. They're going to begin to see that there's a God in heaven that's creating this unconditional love. It's really powerful. Paul picks up on this idea in the book of Philippians when he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. By the way, is this a warped and crooked generation? Very much so. Can I tell you, it's always been for 2,000 years. It's always been warped and crooked. Wow. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. How many know the the stars shine brightest in the backdrop of a dark night? Does everybody know that's true? So here's what you need to know. If you and I just do what God's asking us to do, we're going to be like shining stars in the backdrop of a lot of moral perversion. 
Then he says, as you hold firmly to the word of life, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. And then there needs to be wisdom in our support of others. Listen to what he says here. Take the garment of one who puts up security for a stranger and hold it in pledge as if it is done for an outsider. If anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. And every, mor- every uh, non-morning person says amen. Right, verse 15 and 16, a quarrelsome wife is like the dripping of a leaky roof in a rainstorm. Restraining her is like restraining the wind or grasping oil with the hand. Here we have three very different examples of situations that takes wisdom to navigate. Usually for us, get out of, but that's not what we're talking about. We need to learn how to navigate through these situations. In the first example, it's not suggesting that we don't help the outsider. Rather, we need to be prudent in securing a pledge. See what he's saying? Wise people realize, I'm still responsible to help people, but I have to recognize who I'm helping and what's going to happen as a result. In the second example, it's a warning uh, of people who are quick to speak out our praise as often they have an agenda that may prove problematic. In other words, when people are blessing you, you know, sometimes it's a form of manipulation. So, you know, don't get too excited. You know, I'm going to challenge us. You know, just because people like you or say nice things about you, people are fickle. You know, one, one week they're, they're hailing Jesus in Jerusalem, the next week they're screaming to crucify him. You know, I'm just pointing out people can change their opinions very quickly. You know, the third situation is by far the most difficult. In it, what is meant to be the most cherished relationship, which is marriage, to have a quarrelsome marriage partner. And notice I moved away from the gender thing. You know, there's nasty people on both sides of the gender, right? The argumentative and combative individual who cannot be appeased is difficult indeed. You know, it's, there's some difficult people to be married to or live with, you know, that's true. That's part of life. Now, notice it doesn't say you can, you can just leave that situation. It says you need the wisdom to be able to navigate in that situation. And by the way, if you learn how to navigate in those situations, you know what starts happening? You become a better person. That's interesting. Most of us, we want to exit from difficult situations. We want life to be easy. Come on, let's be honest. We want life to be easy, but then we don't develop and become the person God desires us to become. Now, I'm not advocating for physical abuse. I'm not talking about that. But you know what I'm talking about, that, you know, there's some challenging situations. Can anybody see the irony in this picture? The home ought to be a shelter from the storm, not the storm itself. To live in that environment, I put down, takes courage and character. But let me move on to the final dynamic of friendship. And it's the confidence that relationships bring to us. We've looked at the challenge. We looked at the courage it takes. But here's the confidence. The type of friend we choose or the type of friend we become will affect the kind of person we eventually become. People are one of God's tools for developing our character. We are a composite, as I said, of all the people that have come into our lives. And in verse 17 here, it says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. The one who guards a fig tree will eat its fruit, and whoever protects their master will be honored. As water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. In verse 17, we see how people are shaped. God uses us. This iron sharpening iron idea is the idea of communication. We're communicating with each other 
And by the way, if you're around people, some people really make you think. Some people really challenge you to, you know, think outside of your little preconceived ideas. This is not a bad thing, by the way. You know, I always say to people, read up. And everyone goes, what does that mean? Reading up means read difficult things and things you don't always agree with at times to sharpen your mind and understand where people are coming from. You know, it'll give you a broader sense of ideas. Now, that suggests to me you really got to know what you believe, and you really got to know the scriptures. But you need to, you know, you know, if you only read everything you agree with, you become very narrow very quickly. And, uh, and how do you dialogue with people that are on a totally different page? How do you even relate to people that think differently than you do? You know, you need to know where they're coming from. You need to understand their perspective. You know, you may not agree with it. You may read it and don't agree with it whatsoever, but at least you understand where they're coming from. And you can begin to engage, you know, instead of just being dismissive towards them. How important is that? Uh, And then, you know, if we're going to mature, it means that we have to move outside our comfort zones. How many know that uh, change can create growth? That part of growing requires change. And a lot of us don't want to change, so therefore we don't want to grow. You know, it's really funny. We say, God, I really want to grow. Can I, can I just say one thing to you so you'll understand what's going on? Rather you want to change or not, God's going to create it for you. God has a goal for your life. It's different than yours. Here's God's goal for your life, to make you more like him. And he's going to do what it takes to do that. And he's going to push you into things you don't, you're not going to feel comfortable with. So, you know, when people go, oh, I don't feel comfortable with that, I'm going, so? You know, unless it's immoral or illegal, if God's challenging you to step out and do something you're not quite comfortable with, that's how you grow. You know, but I don't have all the answers. Nobody does. How's that? You've got to learn to trust God. Bruce Walke says it this way, this persistent friend whose wounds are faithful is the opposite of the fawning neighbor who's you know, praising you in the morning and the cantankerous wife and performs an, an indispensable task. As a result of his having a hard friend, a true one, a man develops the capacity to succeed in his task as an effective tool, and in the end, he will thank his friend for being hard as flint. In other words, sometimes the people that you didn't fully appreciate that kind of challenged you, you know, some of the teachers you had in school that you thought were too tough and too hard that pushed you, actually, actually, those people were actually helping you to become a better person. But we don't always value those people at the time. How many know that's true? Well, we used to go sit and talk and complain about how tough that teacher was, you know. But later on, when you look back, you know, you say, thank God they pushed me. Or, you know, some people go, oh, my parents were so strict. You ever have those conversations? You know, they make me did this, this, and that. But then when you look back, you go, thank God they were strict, and they expected something of me. A lot of people feel unloved because their parents have no expectations of them. Come on. That's the truth. Not only is there a need for mutuality in relationships in order to grow from each other, we see in verse 18 the need of fidelity or faithfulness to the task or work. When we labor with diligence, there will ultimately be a reward. Their master will be honored. Now, some people say, yeah, but you know, pastor, I go to work, I work so diligently, but I'm not fairly compensated. How many have ever felt that way? Probably a lot of people in this room have felt that way. Can I just say something? Who are you ultimately working for? God. 
So my, my, my thing is real simple. If you're really working for God, just do the best you can. Don't worry about your earthly boss because ultimately you will be rewarded. If not in this life, you will be rewarded ultimately by God because that's who you're really laboring for. And then in verse 19, it reveals to us the true condition of our soul is reflected by the kind of life we live. People ultimately know us by our fruit. And listen, Jesus said about the false teachers, he says, by their fruit you'll recognize them. He says, do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but bad trees bear bad fruit. Thus by your fruit you will recognize them. But hey, can I tell you something? People are recognizing you by your fruit. What kind of a person are you? That's a good question. Take a look at the fruit, the true test of character and friendship. True friends come and minister heart to heart. In the Bible, we see, though, the heart can at times be deceptive. We're often fooled by other people. But can I say something? Sometimes we're fooled by ourselves. Because we don't even know the true condition of our own heart. You say, is that true? Yes, Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? And that's why the psalmist prays this amazing prayer in Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me into the way everlasting. In other words, I don't even trust myself, ultimately. I'm learning to trust God. But let me move on here. Uh, Verse 20 says, death and destruction are never satisfied, and neither are human eyes. Isn't that interesting? He's likening our unlimited capacity to be fully satisfied in life to death and destruction. Death and destruction are never satisfied, and so is the human heart. There's a constant desire for more. Greed, lust, all of these things is running rampant inside of the human heart. Actually, I think this is interesting. Dr. Walke points out something fascinating. This will probably get people really excited, but... He says, consumerism informs both communism and capitalism, and neither economic system can bring peace. Whoa, what's the right system? Well, they both have strengths and merits, you know? But let me say this. Consumerism is the culprit. It's it's the human heart that's unsatisfiable. Consumerism drives kings to tyranny, nations to war, companies to rape the earth, the irrational adversarial position of management versus labor, and individuals to lust for each other's home spouses and properties. That lust of the eye led Eve and Adam to transgress social boundaries in the first place. What is he saying? We have a heart condition called sin, and that needs to be addressed. Proverbs 27, 21, we are shown... Uh, one's heart test that God utilizes in our lives. And it says here, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but people are tested by their praise. Now, you know, we could say, you know, how do we handle when people say well of us? That's a test. But I love the way Richard Clifford brings this out. And I think this is really amazing. He says, "How how do you assess the worth of a human being? One is known by the quality of one's friends. What kind of people approve of what I do? In other words, you can tell, you know, a person by the people who are approving what you're doing. I mean, if you're hanging with the wrong crowd, they're going to approve the evil things you're doing. If you're hanging with the righteous people that are pleasing God, they're going to be approving what you're doing. You can tell a person by who's approving you. Is that powerful? I think it is. So, Let's finish up and say this, who are my friends and what kind of a friend am I? 
Are my friends walking in wisdom? Am I walking in wisdom? The people who are wise in God's eyes will help me to walk with God, just like Tolkien's little hobbits and others that are helping them move through the challenges that they were faced. We are here to cheer and challenge, and yes, even confront and correct if need be, those around us in this journey called life. What contribution am I adding to my friends' lives? And I think it begins with the ultimate friend. So let's stand as we close. And it always starts with the right kind of a friend. And let me just, let me just encourage us that we have a friend and his name is Jesus. If you've given your life to Christ, he is your friend. Is that amazing? You know, I was just thinking about it. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty impressive when I read in the Bible, Abraham was called the friend of God. But I want to say something to you. If you're putting your faith in Christ, put your name there. You are a friend of God. Red, you're a friend of God. Is that an amazing thought? Does that blow you away? God's your friend. That's, a, that's an awesome thought. Roger, you're a friend of God. Is that encouraging? Dennis, you're a friend of God. Cindy, you're a friend of God. Just put your name there. I'm a friend of God. We sang a lot of songs about friendship with God today. Did you See, I cued in on it because I knew I was speaking on friend of God here, right? And then I think of that great hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who with all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden? Cumbered with a load of care, precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Beautiful. Love it. You know, I want to just challenge us here today. Do you know Jesus as your friend? Have you given your life to Christ? Starts right there. That'll put you on a trajectory that's going to be unbelievable. It's amazing. He's going to start working in your life. He's going to be there for you through every trial, every difficulty, even every failure that you self-implode, he'll still be there picking you up. That's the amazing thing with him. His love is unconditional. Maybe you're listening to me via live stream, and I want to give you this opportunity with every head bowed. Is there anyone here this morning who would say, you know what, Pastor? I want to know Jesus. I want him to be my friend. Maybe that's you. Would you just raise your hand? God bless you. Anybody else? Someone else this morning? Yes, I see that. Yes, good. Number of people are responding this morning. It's great. Let's just pray. Just say, Lord, I surrender my life to you. I ask you to come and fill me with your divine presence. Help me, Lord, to be your friend, even as you desire to be mine. I pray today, Lord, help us to be 
a good friend to other people, Lord. Help us to be wise and true. Help us to approve the things you approve of, Lord, and to help encourage others to do the same. And Lord, I just pray today that we recognize that we can be like those shining stars in a backdrop of confusion and brokenness and hurt and sorrow and sadness. Help us, Lord, even this week to be a good friend to someone. And if we are discouraged, Lord, may you bring a good friend by our way. May your spirit come and enable someone to come alongside of us. But it may just be as simple as us turning to you, Lord, in prayer. As simple as turning to your word and hearing a scripture speak into our innermost being and making it real for us. And hearing your words of life and encouragement. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.